Welcome, everyone, to Fiona's R&D Tax Credit Podcast. We're here with Rahim Walji, Director of R&D Tax Incentives at Cross Border Solutions. This episode is part of our Cautionary Tales series, where we take a look at how companies have mishandled their R&D tax credit claim and what other companies can learn from it. Today, we're investigating a very recent case, Little Sandy Coal. First off, let's get some background on Little Sandy Coal. Rahim, what do we need to know about this company? So Little Sandy Coal is a shipbuilding company, and it's actually a larger conglomeration of companies, and they have a subsidiary called Corn Island Shipyard that's in the business of developing marine structures for various ocean voyages and support services. So whether it's ships, whether it's docks, tankers, things like that, they build those types of vessels. And what activities did the subsidiary perform to claim that credit? Sure. So this case is really about whether... A couple of these vessels, I think there are 11 in total, but the case focuses on two that are being used as sort of examples that the rest of the 11 can be compared to. And so they take two of these vessels, a tanker and a dry dock, that are custom-built vessels and require a lot of design and development and, of course, materials, right? You know, it costs a lot of money to build these types of, of seafaring vessels. And so we're looking at the activities related specifically to the development of these two vessels, the employees that were involved, the materials that went into it, and the outside consulting costs that were relevant. We're looking at all of those costs, and the court is questioning some of the costs that were captured and the way that they were captured. So that's what we're really looking at in this particular case, and it was upwards of of a a seven-figure credit, over a million dollars, I believe. Yes, not just nickels and dimes. Now, where is the company in the legal process and why is that important? Sure, there have been some initial discussions, briefs and things like that in the case. And ultimately, we're now at a place where there's been certain agreements made between the various parties in the case. You know, as I mentioned earlier, there were 11 vessels, you know, that, that were claimed for the particular tax year, I believe it's 2014. And now we're going, you know, the case is specifically looking at two of those vessels and using those as exemplars. And so, you know, there's been some discussion here, but this is really sort of the first real determination now of whether these costs can be captured and these projects do qualify. Of course, and there are two parts to the R&D tax credit. It's performing the activities, and then there's proving that these R&D activities are eligible according to the IRS's four-step eligibility requirements. Let's talk about those. Absolutely. You can do all the R&D that you want, right? But ultimately, what your definition of it is and then whether you can support it is very, very important. And so to remind everyone in the audience, you know, the the four-part test that exists within the tax code requires a new or improved business component. If you've heard any of the the other educational materials that we've we've put out, you know, we, we stress very highly that it's not just new and innovative things that are in, you know, in the new realm, it's also improvement. So new or improved business components like products, processes, techniques, things like that. There has to be an elimination of uncertainty and that has to exist at the outset of the project, right? So you have to be uncertain as to your capability. You know, can, can we do this? The methodology, how do we do this? Or the design, right? What is this going to look like ultimately? How is it going to function? So that's the second prong of of the four. The third is a process of experimentation. And that requires either an iterative process or a systematic trial and error 
or modeling and simulation, right? So if you think about iterative version one, version two, version three, you think about simulation and modeling, right? Technology is so relevant nowadays and used in so many different ways to, to model different designs and test out different dimensions. So, you know, that's another way that you can show that experimentation process. And then systematic trial and error, right? Not necessarily just seeing what sticks, but having a systematic approach to evaluating different alternatives to, to test out, but maybe not the full rigorous, you know, iterative process or modeling process. And the last piece is technological or technical in nature. And really what that means is it has to be rooted in the hard sciences. No disrespect to any social sciences or anything like that, but their R&D tax credit is really there for that piece of the hard sciences, you know, engineering, computer science, biology, chemistry, physics. And just to sum up the four-step eligibility requirements from the IRS, it needs to be a new or improved business purpose. It needs to be technological in nature. It needs to eliminate uncertainty and provide a process of experimentation. Turning to Corn Island Shipyard, where did they run into problems? Corn Island Shipyard ran into challenges in the core process with the process of experimentation. That's the major problem that it dealt with. But Overall, what you see in this case is a few different things that I think we can dive into. So process of experimentation being one, like what truly constitutes the process of experimentation. Number two, there's a rule within the tax code and and cases that have come out that allows companies where 80% or more of the R&D is related to a process of experimentation, you can capture all of the R&D in that project. So it's something called the substantially all rule. That was at issue here. And then there was a question of which costs do you look at in order to get to that substantially all piece, right? Is it, do you look at every single cost? Do you look at materials? Do you look at wages? Do you look at contractors or do you look at certain sections and then what types of employees? So, but it all stems from this process of experimentation piece. So this can get very nuanced, but tell us more about the substantially all rule, Raheem. So there's a rule within the R&D tax world that's called the substantially all rule. And so what that means is if a company's activities are 80% or more of those activities are rooted in this process of experimentation phase, then you can claim 100% of the activities and expenses associated with that project as R&D. Even if certain things may not be directly R&D related, the fact that 80% of the time or more was spent on this process of experimentation, the tax code allows sort of an extra incentive, right? That it, it now gets to go through and you get to capture 100% of those costs, right? So you still have to meet the four-part test. You still have to be within those rules. But if more than 80% of the activities are in that process of experimentation phase, you get to reach the substantially all. And that's really what gets clarified here in the case today. You see the, the Corner Island Shipyard talks about 80% of the costs, right? The materials or 80% of the design is different. You know, the hull requires this and that, but the tax court comes in and says, that's great, but it's not about how much in materials is different. It's not about how much in design is different than whether the hull makes up the majority of the ship. It's how much of your people's time was spent on activities that constitute a process of experimentation. You can't just look at materials and things like that. So that's that's what got clarified here, but that's what the substantially all whole means. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. 
Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. So looking at what happened next, Corn Island Shipyard completes the projects for the customer, and then the snag comes when the company tries to claim the credits. The IRS denies the claim, saying that the activities did not fulfill the substantially all test. Can you give us kind of a play-by-play -play for what happened here? Sure. The ultimate test that they were looking at was Corn Island sort of made an all-or-nothing claim. They said, look, we believe that the dry dock was completely new and entirely novel components and, and elements and costs a lot of money for those elements. And that made up a substantial portion of the project. And therefore, you know, substantially all of it is, is R&D. And so we should get to claim 100% of this dry dock project. And the Apex Tanker project was that second project. It was a little bit different. It, it was based on, on a previous sort of design, but there were, there were a significant amount of changes that had to be made and design improvements that had to be made in order to get it to meet certain requirements. And so again here, Corn Island Shipyard team said, look, you know, the hull constitutes 85% of this boat and we made substantial changes to it. And, and so that yields, you know, more than this 80%. And, I, and I'm paraphrasing, but I just wanna make sure that the, the point gets across, right? So they're looking at it from a different perspective, essentially and saying 80% of our costs, 80% of the design, 80% of XYZ is different or more and so that's that's what the problem is. But the IRS comes in or the tax court comes in and says, that's great. We understand what you're saying, but the activities are what we want to look at. And so from a substantially all standpoint, the tax court saying, we understand that the materials cost, you know, 80% of this was new materials or new components or 80% or of the design that was drawn up and tested was new. But where were your people spending their time, right? Where were your engineers spending their time? What was everybody doing? We need to take a line by line approach to make sure that we're getting to 80% of the activities constituting a process of experimentation. And on top of that, they went one step further and said, not only do we have to look at the people and their activities, you also cannot include supporting and supervision. And so this is a big, big point that they're trying to make is like, look, it's the direct involvement, right? It's the engineers that are actually doing the design work. It's the engineers that are actually testing this out. It's not an engineering manager that may be contributing or a junior engineer that's helping to document the design and the process. They're really narrowing this field into saying just the direct participation, the direct R&D um, is what we want to look at. And so that's sort of a, a summation of where the substantially all rule plays out in this particular case. Right. So in a way, this seems like a big miscommunication between the IRS and the company. Does this happen often? You know, I, I wouldn't say miscommunications happen. I definitely would say misunderstandings happen. And I think it's on two sides, right? Number one, unfortunately, the way the U.S. R&D system is set up, it, there are parts of it that are intentionally vague. And so the IRS thinks from their perspective that we're doing our best 
to leave it open to interpretation, right? We can't take every situation into account, otherwise it will be too narrow. And then on the other side, you have business owners who are, their job is understanding the day-to-day business and not necessarily understanding how tax people want to define R&D. And so I think there's this, this misunderstanding leads to a miscommunication, right? I have no doubt in my mind that Corn Island Shipyard and Little Sandy Cole truly believe that like this work is, is innovative, it's new, it's R&D, and we're spending a lot of time and effort to develop these. And, and I don't think they by any means did this you know, to, to try to game the system. They're like, we really think that this is 80%. And here we're getting some more clarity, right? As, as it does happen with, with regulatory code is the code says one thing, you have examples in the code as well that they try to do their best to, to hit different categories, but you really see the code get interpreted in cases. And so this case here is really showing what happens when there's this misinterpretation or miscommunication, as you stated. Corn Island Shipyard also made an alternative argument to prove they satisfied the substantially all test involving elements of an experimentation process. Can you tell us more about this, Rahim, and the court's decision in this matter? So Corn Island Shipyard tried to say, okay, you know, fine, these particular supply costs don't count or these particular items don't count. But what they did try to say is, okay, from an employee standpoint, you know, direct supervision, direct support, direct participation, all of it falls under process of experimentation. Not only did the design and the testing piece come in, but they took fabrication time of different pieces of equipment and components. And the purpose being that all of this time goes into develop something that then gets tested. And so it's all a process of experimentation until that testing comes back and says, you know, this is, this is good to go. But the court came in and said, look, sorry, supervision and support isn't actual research. They're not conducting the research. They are supporting it or supervising it. And so by that definition, you can only include the people who are directly doing the research. That's that process of experimentation. And that's the only sort of, you know, if you, if you figure this as a fraction, right, that's what goes into the numerator. The denominator is going to be a lot bigger because there's a lot more costs, obviously, in these projects. But the numerator can really only include you know, these direct participating employees and their wages that are going into it. Going back to the shrink back rule, the court did not have sufficient data to apply the shrink back rule here. How could this have changed the outcome of the case? What does it say about the importance of robust documentation? This is probably something that those who have had the pleasure of hearing my voice on a few of these have heard me say, right? Documentation can really change the way that things are are presented and understood. And so here, again, no doubt in my mind that Corn Island truly believed that this was this was all R&D and this was more than 80%. But the challenge was they sort of picked an all or nothing strategy in that what they submitted and presented, they didn't have the level of, of subcomponents or detail behind the data to support this shrink back rule, right? Which is Which is exactly present and available because the courts understand that it's not always going to be substantially all. You do need a method by which you can kind of zoom in and zoom out, if you will, to get to the right area where the R&D is taking place. And so whether the records were there or submitted or not, you know, I don't think that's the issue. I think it's what was in front of the court to look at when they wanted to go line by line, you know, to kind of look through these things and figure out how far they could shrink back or how much they could include. They said, look, unfortunately, this is what's in front of us. It's an all or nothing strategy. And, and based on what we see in front of us, we have to go with nothing. And, and that's, you know, I think where 
it becomes important for companies to understand that the R&D tax credit shouldn't be an afterthought. It shouldn't be like, oh, let me go back and get this. And it, it's got to be a, a conscious decision and a mindset from the, the company as a whole to say, look, we're going to keep track of this information. We understand how each of us is involved in the R&D process and that education piece is important. And I know it's sometimes hard to think about it that way because as a business, you're saying, I've got to make sure my people do their job. And this R&D credit is, is sort of a, a side benefit. But if it's done in a way that it integrates with the mindset of the firm, it becomes very, very easy to document. It becomes very, very easy to support. Then you open yourself up to having more than one argument. You can have the all or nothing strategy, but you can also have the level of detail you need from a shrink back perspective to still protect your, your claim if the courts or the tax authorities come back with a different interpretation. So just to clarify here, is this a problem with the activity or the documentation? So I think it's both. It's I think it's a problem with the level of detail and the documentation they maintained or, or submitted in terms of the claim. And then I think it's a misinterpretation of the activity and what constitutes that process of experimentation. So I think that is where, you know, it's a little bit of both. It's a problem with the documents and a problem with the way the activities were characterized. Oof. Oof, yikes. Now, this is all a major win for the IRS. It's the second tax court triumph in less than two years, the first one being Simer Milling Company, which we talked about a couple of episodes ago. What do qualifying and claiming companies need to be aware of moving forward? Absolutely great question. And I think the first is taking the time to learn from these types of situations, right? And comparing them to what is being done in their business right now to claim the R&D credit or if they're thinking about claiming the R&D credit. I think that's where the takeaways need to be that documentation is very, very helpful. Categorizing that documentation, showing how it supports various employee activities or various costs is important to be able to protect at least some element of your claim if you're going for some of these larger strategies of substantially all and things like that. And then I think the next is keeping an eye on how the IRS and different states are handling these definitions and these activities and what can be claimed. Because, you know, I think for the most part, you would see that, yes, most large tax providers, boutique tax providers, specialty tax providers understood that the 80% rule, you know, applied to to process of experimentation and what was going on. But now you're seeing the tax work come very clearly out and say, no, these are the variables that can be included in the numerator. These are the variables that go in the denominator. And so the IRS is also taking an opportunity to help itself define a standard that they want to apply going forward. So it's, it's learning from these and kind of reading the tea leaves, if you will, of where are things going and how do we best prepare our company, prepare our people and prepare our claim to yield the best result. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, 
Why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. And how have you seen companies successfully streamline the integration of R&D into the business? I think it's it's really changing the way that they value the benefit. And so I think most employees in a company would say, "Oh, my boss needs me to fill out this survey or my boss needs me to do this interview or oh, I need to go dig into my files for earlier in the year for these project documents and I don't even know what this is for." And so I think it's educating the team first and foremost and making it a priority within the firm of saying, "Look, if we track this as part of our day-to-day, and we are all educated on what we're looking for we can all help the company together it helps us buy more equipment helps us hire more people for your department right so i think getting them on board with that and then next i really think it's it's technology so you know there's so many tools available today to track information easily and and with low cost there's so many different expertise available right in in different areas and in different industries to come in and help and do what we do, right? So one of the reasons that cross-border is successful is because we leverage technology to take a huge amount of the burden off of the taxpayer and, and their business, right? It's, here's better ways to track this. You can use this tool to do this and instead of doing a manual process and, and having no guidance whatsoever. So I think it's it's the mindset piece and then the, te- the tools piece, right? The technology piece is leveraging what's out there to have a better document retention policy, to, to better categorize things and have the option to click, you know, this might be R&D. So at least during the year, people are kind of constantly thinking about it. And when you get to the end of the year, each year you're going to get better and better at this and, and the claims will get more robust and you'll be able to accurately defend them. And some taxpayers have the perception that the IRS is denying more and more claims. What would you say to those taxpayers? It's similar to police departments are giving out more and more traffic tickets. You know, I think that unfortunately, you know, there is budget constraints are happening everywhere. And so I think, you know, the IRS is definitely denying claims, of course. I, you know, statistically, I'd have to look at the math to be able to say whether it's it's more and more. I think sometimes the perception is there because you see some of these cases come out and it starts to give you that thought. But for each of these cases that comes out, there's so many more claims that are approved, right? And companies that are taking advantage of this benefit. So while I would say is that may be the perception, it's definitely not the case. This is still the largest, you know, incentive that's claimed by businesses, you know, in terms of specialty credits. The key takeaway here is learning from these experiences, you know, which is why we love doing this this series of, of learning from these mistakes and how can your claim get better so that you're not one of these future examples, right? Do you think that R&D in that case tends to be an afterthought for taxpayers? Yes, I do. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Number one, there's not a lot of education about it, right? You don't really hear about it unless you're talking to a CPA. And even then, not every single CPA knows about it. Not every in-house tax professional knows about it. And so I do, I do think that most of the time it's oh, what about this? Not, we're planning our year with this in mind. So I do tend to think that it becomes an afterthought or a delayed opportunity or a late opportunity. 
And we've covered a few companies and cases in this Cautionary Tales series. Rahim, what do you find particularly interesting about this case? I think what's most interesting about this is the level of detail that the court went through to pull out certain costs and expenses and categories of employees and to really highlight and almost provide a brighter line rule instead of a gray area to float in, right? Of, of this is what we expect, this is what we're going to include. And that hasn't happened you know, very, very clearly in a little while. I, I think there's been a lot of general standards that have been set and things like that, but this was a, a, a lot of specificity in this case when it comes to that substantially all and how it's being categorized. And so I found that very interesting and again, notable to, to keep an eye on how future cases come out and you know other cases that may apply this as precedent or, or as authority in their arguments, you know, how do those get uh, interpreted and, and played out? Would you say there are any similarities between this case and the Trinity Marine case we covered recently? Yes, there definitely are. You know, both happen to be shipbuilding cases. So I think that really does set a lot of the overlap, you know, into play and into motion because when you're in that industry, you're going to see a lot of similarities in approaches and, and in the construction and in the design and in the testing. And so there definitely are, you're not noticing anything unique. It's, it's definitely there. It's, it's clear for everyone to see. And, and I think that's primarily stemming from the industry piece and therefore the arguments that go with it, that, you know, the types of costs they're capturing, the substantially all rule applying. I think there's definitely some consistencies in the approach and some overlaps. And comparisons to other cases, episodes aside, what do you think are the primary takeaways from this case? Takeaways from the case, documentation is key. Contemporaneousness is key, you know, in terms of not waiting till the end of the year to document things or formulate a strategy for how you want to claim the R&D credit. And then I think having multiple approaches prepared, right? So what does this case look like in an, in an all or nothing scenario? How do I make sure to have a backup in mind of, okay, if I can't get 100% of this, how do I make sure I don't lose 100% of my claim and I can at least support 60, 70, 75% of it and make sure that my company gets the money that I need? And leveraging you know, better ways to maintain documentation, technology, and then the mindset and training your, your team and employees. There was no doubt in my mind that the level of expertise and authority, if you look at these naval engineers and, and the expertise that they have, I mean, these are very, very, very smart people and they're doing a lot of things that you or I, you know, probably wouldn't be able to do. It was just the takeaways would be keep that documentation, get more detail, don't have a lot of generalities, and then try to use technology to help make things easier for your company and instill a mindset that people want to keep track of this and, and do it better and better every year. They're not just checking the boxes to get it off their plate. And a few years ago, the R&D tax credit expanded to include improvement as much as it rewards innovation. Do you think that has complicated things in terms of claiming the credit for taxpayers? I think anytime things are expanded or definitions are enlarged or, or elaborated upon, there's an adjustment period, right, to understand what it really means. And so I do think it has complicated things in the sense that those that see an opportunity to take advantage and kind of push the envelope and, and claim some things. And then I think you see it in just the level of uncertainty that does exist with, with a lack of clarity, right? Sometimes these changes come about, but there's not a lot of detail as to what it means and how it impacts my company, right? Or, you know, speaking from a taxpayer standpoint. And so I think this, this has complicated things, but there's a lot of good information out there in terms of 
legislative intent in terms of case law and results that have come that allow companies to draw certain patterns and conclusions. And look, I don't expect companies to go read all these cases, right? That's why companies like Cross Border exist is because, you know, you can't expect everybody to learn this, but there's a lot of, like I said, I don't want to just call it reading the tea leaves, but you can really distill a lot of what's happening and, and how to bolster your claim by looking at what's out there. But yeah, it's gotten a little bit more complicated. And do you think taxpayers are hesitant to apply for the R&D tax credit because of how complicated the tax code is? I think the reason most people hesitate is not necessarily complexity. I think that's one piece of it, but it's lack of understanding, which again, whether you want to chalk that up to complexity or just lack of engagement with the information. So I guess the way I'd put it is with how much research has been done recently into R&D stuff, there's a plethora of information out there, right? In terms of what what qualifies, how it works, what the rules are, what industries can qualify, what types of activities can qualify. It's all there, but the rules are changing constantly, right? We talk about the CARES Act, right? Who knows what was in the CARES Act and some of these 800 page bills that are coming through and, and the same thing with the with Biden's, you know, uh, plan that just got passed, you know, $1.9 trillion. Like what really changed in the tax code for that, right? And, and what does this really mean for my company? So. I think it, it continues to be a complicated beast because you're trying to take this multi-thousand page, you know, book of regulations, quote unquote, and every time you make a change, you know, did you make a change to the right year? Did you make a change to this other section that had this other weird reference to it? And yeah, the complication piece is there for sure. But unfortunately, it's just always been complicated. So given the complicated rules and eligibility, is it still worth applying for the R&D tax credit? Without a doubt. It, as I tried to say earlier in the, in the conversation, you know, the fact that you see these cases come out and you see these results, for every single one of these cases that comes out, there are thousands of claims that get approved. And the whole point that I would leave with the audience is this is not a reason to stop claiming. It's an opportunity to improve your process. It's the same thing that would happen if you had a manufacturing facility and you notice an inefficiency in the process or you see another manufacturing company or facility run into an issue. You're not going to ignore the problem that you might potentially have. You should look for an opportunity to make it better. And so this shouldn't change the mindset of people in terms of and businesses in terms of whether they claim the credit. It really should they should feel more confident saying, okay, as long as I can improve these areas in my business and in my claim. I'm going to have a much more defensible claim and I'm going to have a much more supported claim that's going to give me the benefit that I need and the comfort and confidence that I need to continue to file these and use this money to help my business grow. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, 
penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with cross-border solutions, AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp. That's xbs.ai slash tp. And we want to thank Raheem for being with us. Subscribe to this podcast and the cross-border suite of tax podcasts on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That's Fiona's R&D Tax Credit Podcast, and we'll fill you in on the R&D tax credits in every episode. This episode counts for two one-fifths of a CPE credit. To claim those credits, email The Fiona Show at xbs.ai. Until next week, everyone, stay safe, wear a mask, and we'll catch you then. Thank you.